Welcome to Better Worlds, a podcast exploring geek culture across mediums. I'm Dustin. I'm Matthew. And I'm Trevor. To start off with follow-up, um, last week we, I talked about the Star Wars... No, not Star Wars. The Star Trek Discovery trailer. <laughs> Should I rephrase that? I really love that part where the Picard fights the Darth Vader. <laughs> I don't know why I it's I never had that problem until like last year. And then I started mixing up Star Wars and Star Trek. And the part where the Borg simulated the Death Star, that was some top quality cinema TV. Cubes versus spheres, who would win? <laughs> Wait, what did you say? Cubes versus spheres. Oh. What are the relative volumes of either? Because one could enclose the other if we don't know that. <laughs> a sphere maximizes volume while minimizing surface area. I think we've set a new record for how fast we go off track. But a square can poke you in the eye. <laughs> a You're right. It can. Also a cube. <laughs> the, a square is the... <laughs> a cube is the closest to a sphere that you can get while having like... No, that's wrong. That's not right. JK. Someone forgot about the humble pyramid. <laughs> <laughs> what? You don't even know what I was going to say. Well, hey, then we have Star Trek versus Star Wars versus Stargate, and it can be Borg Death Star Ra. <laughs> um, wait, I wanted to throw out that there's Stargate. a Simpsons quote where there's someone at a Stargate convention, and they say, out of the four star franchises being Star Wars, Star Trek, Stargate, and Star Search, yours is easily my third favorite. <laughs> Battle Star. What is Star Search? It's like an old version that was kind of like American Idol that they've periodically tried to revive. But I think it had it was less like just singing and more like generic talent. And which one was the third favorite? Stargate. Oh, Stargate. <laughs> because he was at a Stargate convention and he was talking to a Stargate actor. <laughs> Yours is easily my third favorite. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Talk about faint praise. <laughs> so, anyway, last week we talked about the Star Trek Discovery trailer, and I had expressed concern over the trailer not matching the expectations given to me by the title. Um, and I had listened to, not had listened, I have listened to a podcast uh an episode of the incomparable discussing the trailer and they pointed out that the starship in the trailer is not actually the, the USS discovery. And so that gives me more hope that all of that stuff is just like set up and whatever battle they're going to engage in is just going to be in the first episode, setting up the plot for the rest of the series. So my hopes have been buoyed by that. Did anyone else have, any follow-up? Nope. No? I don't know if I did. Trevor, did you see the Wonder Woman movie? I did. Bing! The following section about Wonder Woman contains no spoilers. Bing! What were your thoughts? Briefly. I enjoyed it. What? I... It is the first DC movie that I like. And that is high praise. Yeah. Um. I Up until now, 
every DC movie that I went to, I thought, I wonder if this will be the good one. And every Marvel movie I went to, I thought, I wonder if this will be the bad one. And now, um, I can't say the scales have been balanced, but there is a good DC movie now. You finally came out with the answer. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes, I did. Um, so yeah, we finally have a good one. Um, I know a lot of people will, uh, strongly take issue with me saying that, but sorry, I meant opinions. The other movies were just not my thing. Wait, I have a fault. I have a question for both of you. Cause I think you've both seen it, right? Yes. Does it at all compare to Captain America, like the first Captain America movie in the sense of like it being a period piece where someone is fighting in a world? I don't know. A a semi-optimistic hero is fighting in a dark world war. Mm. It's been a while since I saw the first Avenger. There were ways in which it felt like a mashup of the first Captain America movie and the first Thor movie. Okay, that was my other question because it seems like you'd almost it's almost a combo of those two elements. Right. Not that Wonder Woman isn't her own distinct thing, but that cinematically we've seen those two stories and that it would kind of be those stories in a way combined. Right. And yeah, it, I don't mean it as not der- um, it's not derivative in the yeah, sense. Yeah, it's not it's, derogatory. I'm not saying it's derivative or anything. It's just hard not to see that similarity. Mm-hmm. Cause you've got both the fish out of water and then the setting period piece thing going. I don't know. Right. And there's like the, they're both elements of, she's not a Greek God, but she's f- f- firmly ensconced in that milieu. Right. Yeah. Maybe we should, st- isn't she the daughter of Zeus? And is that what they, do they stick with that? It depends on the iteration in the comic that, you're reading what her origin story is. Did they touch a bonnet in the movie at all? They do. Okay. And you get a sense of that from one of the trailers, but I don't remember which one. I mean, like her mom's going to be Hippolyta regardless, I would assume. Right. She is. It's just like in the new 52, um, she's more of like a Hercules esque, uh, a demigod from a an actual union between Hippolyta and Zeus, whereas other uh, comic versions, she's formed from clay by Hippolyta, and I don't know if there is any action from Zeus, and others, she's formed from clay, and Zeus brings her to life, and it's just, it depends on where you're reading. Interesting. How she's, uh, or... How she's birthed. It could be weird because Marvel has Hercules as an established longtime character that they're probably going to completely avoid in cinematic stuff just because they don't want to mm. draw comparisons. I would think. Yeah. And it's not just someone like with the name Hercules. It's literally the Hercules. Yeah, that would be odd. I agree. They, they'll probably avoid that because they didn't shy away from the Greek mythology in this movie. Interesting. So, I mean, like it was, they mentioned Zeus and other gods and stuff. So as the resident wonder woman fan, I was very pleased with the movie. I tweeted, she was everything I hoped she would be. And, um, 
Wonder Woman is, I describe her to my wife as my heart superhero because, um, like Batman is cool because he has gadgets and he fights crime and he can solve mysteries. He's smart. Um, but he doesn't help refugees and he doesn't necessarily fight against social injustice. And that is what Wonder Woman focuses on, at least in the comics that I've read. And so she is, she shares values that I hold, I guess. And I really, that's really important to me. And even if people don't like the story from the movie, to me, the most important part of it was the character of Wonder Woman herself. And I thought they, they got that exactly right. And so I was really happy through the whole thing of how true they were to the character of Wonder Woman from my perspective. So makes sense. I mean, that's kind of like the first Avenger. I would argue that the story there doesn't matter nearly as much as it, as the opportunities it gives for Steve and to a, I guess, secondary extent, Peggy Carter to show their respective characters. But I guess the Peggy Carter thing's more like in setup for how the show works out. Do you feel like the first Avenger did a good job of setting up both characters? Um, insofar as they, ye- yes, but I don't think they had the show planned for Peggy Carter and Peggy Carter didn't exist really outside of the movie before they made the movie. So it's hard to like, they did a good job of making that a character in the movie and then expounding upon it in the show. But I guess more, more importantly, like Captain America, did they do a good job of setting up that character in your opinion? I thought so. Okay. I mean, not like a perfect job or the way I would have necessarily done it, but I think they did a very good job of like making it work for on screen, the movie universe, the way it's working. Yeah. And I I mean, yeah, I'm not complaining about it. So (laughs) it just seems like a lot of people don't hold that as highly in the Marvel listing of Marvel universe movies, cinematic universe, but I might be wrong. I mean, I would argue that Captain America is always better as a part of a team that he's leading. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So he's not like a full character if you just have him running around in his solo stuff. Right. Like he almost needs to be in concert. Like he's defined by his relationships with others and whereas other characters can be solo characters and be defined by that. I don't know that, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. I don't think that the first Avenger is necessarily bad. It's just overshadowed by winter soldier and civil mm-hmm. war and Avengers and age of Ultron. Right. That's true. Because you get to see him again in relationship to other characters and how he like, I don't know because he's just such a born leader and you can't be a born leader if you're, I mean, he's still doing that in first Avenger, I guess, but I also don't like the ni- the name First Avenger. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the trajectory you would want your movie to follow or your movie series to follow is get getting better and better. It, I don't know if that makes sense, but well, it's a tough sell to say 
it's all going to be mildly downhill from here. <laughs> right. As of right now, I think he has the best trilogy of characters that have trilogies that yeah. just compare. He has a better trilogy than Iron Man. <laughs> Honestly, I don't even think of Civil War as the third Captain America movie. I don't either. I think of it as the third Avengers movie. It's kind of both in a way. Yeah. Because, but I feel like, again, I would be of the opinion that a Avengers team isn't really an Avengers team if Captain America's not on it. Yeah. Well, I was going to say a minute ago, maybe we should stop before we get into too much detail on Wonder Woman, but now we're like discussing Marvel <laughs> instead. So yeah, I feel kind of guilty about that. It's <laughs> eh, okay. I don't know. I mean, in a way, it's there's just less to discuss because Marvel has what, like a dozen movies now, if not more, like 15 or something. And there's like 16, I think. Yeah, and they're at four. Is that right? Because you've got yeah. Man of Steel, um, Dawn of Justice, the Suicide Squad in this movie, right? Like, that's all that's out at the moment. Right. That is correct. They're going to have more in the near future because they've got, like, a Ju Justice League, I think, comes out later this year. And then there's an Aquaman and a Flash and a Cyborg and a something else. Am I forgetting? <laughs> uh, Batgirl. Oh, yeah, Batgirl. It was Batgirl in this. Okay, I guess I didn't see that part. Yeah. I, I mean, she's not. I don't know if she's in Justice League. Well, I mean, is it part of like the DC? You, like, I don't know. You can have characters not necessarily in the same cinematic universe. Oh, yes. They have a Batgirl movie slated. And isn't Joss Whedon directing it? Yes. Okay. And I think it's in the DCEU. Mm -hmm. But I might be assuming. Let's just hope the Joker's not in it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that he would be. I don't think that they would follow that story arc. <laughs> I would hope they'd realize that the killing joke is something to stay away from. Yeah. I think they do. There's been a lot of, well, then again, not because they just did a cartoon movie of it. I mean, it's a really popular comic, but yeah, that has been retconned, I think, from even in the New 52. I think it was retconned. Okay. So... But to summarize, Wonder Woman was good, and you should watch it. I could certainly discuss it more in depth if we wanted to, but I don't want to yet. Same. I want to let people get their own opinions of it. Yeah. And just kind of revel in the fact that it was actually a good movie for a little while. <laughs> Hooray. So who's ready for Finland fun fact number whatever this is? 74. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, did you guys listen to the Sibelius piece that I sent oh, you? Oh, no. I didn't. See, I, I actually got into the Finland thing for a little bit, and you guys failed me. Oh, yeah. I sent them a link to the song Finlandia. Or not song, but the piece Finlandia. I did listen to the first half. Okay. Well, the opening notes, I think, could make an excellent spoiler warning. Oh. I did think that we could integrate it into the show in some way. So I like the idea of a spoiler warning. It also answered the question of whether or not I've listened to Sibelius at all, because near the end, past the point you would have listened to, there's a segment called Finlandia Hymn, and it is, in fact, used as a tune for some well-known hymns. Oh, really? Oh. 
So you, there's a good chance you'd recognize that when it got to it. Yeah. There were parts in the first half that I recognized, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to say, oh yeah, I've listened to Finlandia before. Right. And I don't know where I've heard those parts, it, but yeah, they seem familiar. Also fun Finlandia fact about that song. <laughs> um, it was performed under various false names to throw off Soviet censors. Hmm. Interesting. Because the Soviet Union didn't like having Finland around. Uh, well, they didn't like nationalism. Was Finland part of the Soviet Union? I, um, you're asking questions. I think they were adjacent. I, I mean, it's, it's like having one of, it's hard to even analogize having just a big superpower literally sharing a border with you that was expansionist to a degree. Right. But we can say like East Germany was in the Soviet Union. I don't think that Finland was, but I might be wrong. <laughs> oh, sorry. Not Soviet. The Russian Empire. This was way before the Soviet Union. Oh, okay. My bad. That makes um, sense. Yeah. Um, the piece was composed as a, a part of a covert protest against increasing censorship from the Russian Empire um, and then would be performed under fake names such as Happy Feelings at the Awakening of Finnish Spring or a Scandinavian Choral March so that the the Russian censors would not catch it. Hmm. But yeah, this was, this was way before the Soviet Union. Gotcha. 1900. I just remembered Russian censorship and my mind auto-filled Soviet. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, I think the Soviet Union started after the Russian Revolution in, was that 17 or 18? So it wasn't that much, but, but yeah, no, anyway, that's an anecdote. Never mind. So on we go. So this fact goes out to all the people who want to live in the European Union, but don't like living in densely populated areas. Finland is the most sparsely populated country in the European Union, with only 16 inhabitants per square kilometer. How much does that work out to square mile? No clue. <laughs> <laughs> Not many. <laughs> Would you say it's more or less sparsely populated than Tatooine? How many inhabitants are there per square? square kilometer in, on Tatooine. All I know is that the words Tatooine is sparsely populated are spoken on screen. That is the extent of my knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> and you call yourself a Star Wars fan. I'm just kidding. I was doing some research recently into exchange rates for Star Wars currency and felt like I really had come up against, uh, a brick wall of sorts when I saw somebody reach the conclusion that an X wing was worth a hundred thousand us dollars. Cause there's, there's no way that's right. No. <laughs> and then somebody else was like, yeah, the death star would have cost about $800,000. I was like, no, 800,000, like 800 million. I think he said it had like $800 million worth of steel. I was like, no, that it has to be way, way more than that. Well, yeah, maybe just in the, the, if you're just talking about materials, then that's one thing, but yeah, I don't remember the death star numbers exactly, but, um, and even then, like it's, there's just no comparison cause it's not even steel. It's dura steel and all kinds of other metals. Anyway, it's dura what? <laughs> dura steel. It's totally different. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. You said sparsely populated and the results were unavoidable. <laughs> <laughs> Duly noted. I derailed the Finland facts. 
well, the 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 fact was over. This so. will be a day long remembered. <laughs> the people of Finland are known for their long thirst for revenge at their <laughs> facts being derailed. Sisu. Sisu. Well, gentlemen, it is nigh on summertime. And when I think of summertime, besides thinking of mosquitoes and heat and construction and heat <laughs> and mosquitoes and heat mosquitoes and heat, I think of... How do you feel about summer? <laughs> <laughs> it's not my favorite season. I think of summer reading. So this week we are going to be discussing books that we have either read in previous summers or are currently reading or think it might be a good idea for other people to read this summer. Um, does that, does that cover what we're planning to do with this section? I didn't know previous summers were fair game. Oh. <laughs> yeah. We're just, we're throwing out a mishmash of books that we're reading that we've read that we just figured you might be interested in. And, at worst, you'll hear things and think, I want to avoid that book. And at best, you'll hear that a book with something about a book we're saying, and then we'll, <laughs> oh, okay. You'll think, I want to read that book. And, and at mediocre, <laughs> you'll happening right now. <laughs> halfway, you'll think, oh, that's a book. <laughs> this is a podcast. Listen at your own risk. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you guys are doing. <laughs> A quarter of the way in, you'll think, that's definitely a book, but I should probably avoid that because I've got better things to do with my life. Three quarters of the way in, you'll think, wow, that's a book that sounds somewhat interesting, but I should probably, I don't know, maybe read that. Like, I'll think about it, and you'll pull up an Amazon page on your phone, you'll look at it, you'll agonize, maybe then you'll get it from your local library, which is a great resource. But you'll probably never commit. <laughs> So who's going to start this train? Uh, it's you. It's me. Okay. Oh, boy. Well, the book that I am currently reading is uh, called Wizard and Glass. It is the fourth book in the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. And I'm, I chose it because I want to prepare myself as best oh, I can. Can I pause just to say, as a note for the listeners, we're not going to give spoilers for these books. Um, our goal is not to... It's to talk very generally about the books. Yeah, we're going to talk very generally and kind of let you know why we want to read them and why you might want to read them or all the other things that those guys just... I totally said that in the introduction. You said we were going to tell them why they don't <laughs> want to read them. <laughs> I did not say that. Thank you, Trevor. Okay. Anyway, point is no spoilers. This book is terrible. Wait for the movie. <laughs> <laughs> what? This book is terrible. Wait for the movie. Oh. No, that's just like the worst book comment I could think of. Oh my gosh. You guys are. <laughs> <laughs> if I were a listener, I would have stopped listening by now. Wow. That's... No, no, no. <laughs> okay. That's not true. Okay. Our point is there will be no spoilers. We love you too, Trevor. There will, there will be no spoilers. <laughs> if for no other reason, then I haven't read the whole thing. <laughs> also... Snape kills Trinity with Rosebud. What? No. <laughs> that's that's an interesting mix. I wouldn't have connected those three. <laughs> it's an XKCD reference. Oh, it is. Oh, jeez. An old XKCD at this point. 
where would I be without you guys? So, Wizard and Glass. It is the fourth book in the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. I am currently 30% of the way through this book. And I'm reading it because I want to be prepared for the Dark Tower movie that's coming out in when? This fall sometime, right? August? August, yeah. Which I guess is technically summer. They keep pushing it back, but I can't ever keep track of when it is. I see. In all reality, I'm not going to have read enough of the books to fully prevent Spoiler City while watching the movie, so I'm probably not going to see the movie until it comes out on disc at this point, but I thought it's summer. I'll give it a shot. It's not my favorite Dark Tower book so far. There's a lot of um, relations or talk of relations, and that's my least favorite part of any of the Dark Tower books, but it's a lot more prevalent in this one. Um, so I've been considering taking Matthew's advice and reading a synopsis of part of the book and then reading the last part of the book and then going on to the next one, which I would be reading the wind through the keyhole. Is that the name of the dark tower 4.5? Um, do you want to actually read in chronological order or publishing order? I was going to read in chronological order. I know the next one would be Wolves of the Kala. Yeah. I'm a fan of publishing order generally, but that's... I would be too, but I know that we said that 4.5 was going to be covered in the movie, so... Hence my plan on reading that one next. Disclosure to listeners, I read everything a while back. Like I, You've read, read all the books? Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, like all of the... Yeah, Dark I know Tower what you mean. Books. Yeah. Not like all the books. <laughs> <laughs> that was what I was getting at, but I knew that yes. that's not what you meant. Um, if I can add a small comment. Please. <laughs> Wizard and Glass is easily my least favorite out of the original seven. I enjoyed the beginning. I don't, I think I've said this before. I don't like story elements where you're spinning your wheels, where nothing's progressing. And when you have a 500 page flashback, <laughs> it's very much that. Yeah. So for the listeners who haven't read any of the Dark Tower series, um, it is kind of, I like to think of it as a Western version of the Lord of the Rings. It's a fantasy-esque book sprinkled with uh, science fiction and Western genres. Yeah. Uh, so it's an interesting mix. It's Stephen King, when he was writing, and this is by Stephen King, um, yeah. when he was initially conceiving of it, said that, he wanted to write something like Lord of the Rings, but he didn't have like anything to distinguish it from Lord of the Rings at the time until he saw the good, the bad and the ugly. And then he was like, oh, this Western element combined with the Lord of the Rings is what I want to do. And that's kind of how he just went with it. It's very much Stephen King-ish with those elements as a foundation. Mm -hmm. And so this particular uh, book has a large portion of it playing as a kind of a flashback. The gunslinger Roland Deschane is telling a story from his, or his youth. And so that's what Matthew is talking about with spinning the wheels. Um, 
and that is the section that is a little bit too sexy for my tastes. Can we say that on the air? Sexy? Yes. Okay. If you have small children around and don't want them to hear that word, then I don't know. <laughs> we'll just bleep it out for you. Yeah. It's too <laughs> Trevor will insert the first notes of Finlandia right there. <laughs> I didn't want a blaring horn. <laughs> oh, man, no. <laughs> I wanted to use it as a spoiler horn. Just get one of us saying, like, oh, no, and just, like, edit that in instead. It's too, oh, no. I don't know how else to describe it. I used relationships earlier. I don't know. Relations. You said relations. 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 <laughs> okay, yeah. Relationships aren't bad, I guess, but <laughs> relations, maybe. It's a little too intimate for my taste. There you go. That's a good euphemism. Yeah. It goes into details that you don't want to know about. Right. It's kissing and telling a lot. Hmm. These are all these are all working, yeah. Well that's all I have for Wizard and Glass. Who's up next? I am with I guess I'll just go into it. Um a book of short stories I'm currently reading called Trigger Warnings, which is a collection of short stories by Neil Gaiman, um, who I'm trying to think of what the most well known thing probably right now there's a series about American gods, which is a book he wrote that's i've read that one i have mixed feelings about that one but that's a different story um literally different story um but anyway trigger warnings is also sandman also literarily <laughs> yeah literally <laughs> literally and literarily that's a me joke uh-huh um yeah i've read actually i've read part of sandman i didn't realize you had read that um that doesn't surprise me though but Trigger Warnings is a group of... It's not even all short stories. Some of it's like poems (laughs) that form short story poems. And it varies drastically in quality that I'm finding. Like, there's been ones where I was like, okay, I like what you're doing there. That genuinely was interesting. Ranging to one where within like a couple pages, I had said, I see the twist coming in this. And then, like, 40 pages later, he got to the twist I foresaw coming, and I was like, you took a long time on the wind-up, and it wasn't actually that good. But then there's some, like, actually, I think the strongest parts have maybe been the poems I've read thus far. Hmm. So, I don't know, I'm, like, maybe a third through it, but it's interesting. If you want something that's light and digestible and has lots of little, I don't know, I'm a big fan of short stories, so... It's definitely something if you wanted to take to a beach or a pool or a park or what have you and just get some feel accomplished by reading several bits of fiction, it would definitely serve that purpose. But I don't even know if I have like a full recommendation for it or not, because like I said, everything's varying drastically in quality. If you've read anything by Neil Gaiman, it definitely has a Neil Gaiman-esque feel. Do the stories fall into a general category? Not even... The the only thing I could say is maybe strange. (laughs) Okay. I guess that makes sense with Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman just has a strange feel to... Like, he wants a story with, like, that's a little strange. That's... I don't know how else to... (laughs) 
like there's something out of the ordinary with every story like there's something that bends reality or there's a semi-magical element but then like he uses that to tell kind of human stories so i don't know maybe it trends a little bit fantasy-ish but not even to i don't even want to use that term because it's not like gnomes and elves and that type of fantasy or anything it's not high is that would that be high fantasy or it's not i don't know fantastical let's say that did you say surrealism to a degree, some of it's surreal. Yeah, I guess I, it doesn't go like surrealism in the sense that everything's super trippy, but not like Dolly. Some of it's a little trippy. Yeah. So is it magical realism? No, <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> not magical realism. That's a whole. I'm just throwing darts at this point. A different animal. And I am not good at darts. Maybe an axolotl. It, what? It's not. OK, I get what you're doing there. What? There's a story that's magical surrealism that's about axolotls. I was just throwing that out there. I'm pretty sure it's not a. Gabriel Garcia Marquez? I don't know. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> I, too, am reading a collection of short stories. Gasp. <laughs> <laughs> this one is by Garth Nix. Hooray. Garth Brooks? Boo. Garth <laughs> Nix. Hooray. A writer <laughs> of fantasy. It is called Across the Wall. Um, the reason I started reading it is that it has a story in it. The first story is in the same universe as Sabriel and Lyriel and Aborson. It's The Old Kingdom Trilogy. The Old Kingdom Trilogy. I knew there was a different name other than the Aborson books, which is what I always call them. Um, which, uh, just in case it's not clear... The word that I am saying is abortion. It has nothing to do with a highly controversial political topic. Um, <laughs> these <laughs> books, um, the series is fantasy, um, and the world that they're set in, there's a border wall between two countries, and the country to the south has um, maybe like World War One, World War Two level technology. World War One's probably World War One, yeah, like British um, World War One specifically, right? And then north of the wall, technology doesn't work, and there's magic and magical creatures and stuff. And going across the wall, um, the technology only works to the south. The magic only works to the north. And for the most part, these books follow the story of the Aborsen who is, um, well, let me back up in the kingdom, the old kingdom to the North. There are a lot of necromancers, um, big problem with that. And the border between life and death is fairly easy to cross. So there's, there's just a lot of trouble with like dead things coming back and going after people and stuff. And there is one person called the abortion who is basically a necromancer, they have the same toolkit as the necromancers, but instead of raising the dead and using them for their own selfish purposes, their purpose is to keep the dead down and to be the border guard between life and death. They bind the dead. Yes, they bind the dead. Um, and they have like these little bells that they use to do various things. It's, it's a pretty cool magical system. 
and pretty well-written books with interesting characters. Um, so if you're not familiar at all with these, start with Sabriel. This is when people ask for book recommendations, I almost always say Sabriel just as my baseline. Like this is a book that I think most people will enjoy. And for some reason I almost never meet people who have already read it. I definitely, I heard about this from Trevor and he was 100% right. It's very, very well written. I think like the world building the author does and specifically the, I guess, magic system is very like, I don't know that I've encountered anything else like it. Um, I've actually, I, my wife just started reading this recently. She seems to be enjoying it. And they're fairly easy reads, I'd say. Mm -hmm. Um, but also interesting. And I don't really read a lot of fantasy personally. Um, I mean, I love Lord of the Rings, but outside of that, I've never read a whole lot of fantasy and, um, I still really enjoyed these. So even if you're not super into fantasy, I would say I, I still found it interesting, even though that's not really my thing in general. Um, so back to the collection I'm reading right now across the wall, um, it's kind of a, just a side story for this world. And I started reading it because Matthew told me if I wanted to read the newest book in this series, Golden Hand, I should read this short story first. Uh, Nicholas Sayre and the Creature in the Case. Yes. Uh, yeah, so that story was pretty good. Um, I don't honestly know how good it would be if you haven't read any of the other books. I enjoyed it. And then I kept reading um, just because I already had this book checked out from the library. So I thought I might as well continue. And there's a little introduction to each story that the author wrote. And he says before the second story, he really doesn't like Arthurian fiction. But then he goes on to say that he actually does like Arthurian fiction and like here are the reasons that he doesn't like it. And basically he thinks people kind of rehash the same things all the time. And while he likes the once and future King, he doesn't like all of the other things that are basically identical to that, that are offered up as like new takes, but like they're actually completely the same. And so then he has this short story he wrote that is a different take on the lady in the lake. And it really is a very different take from anything I've seen anywhere else. And it was very well written. Like I, um, I didn't know if I was going to be interested in any of these other stories. I kind of expected to read the one that's related to Sabriel and then try some of the others and not really care about them, but it was very well written hmm. and it definitely like I was finished with it like before, almost before I knew I had started it just cause I was kind of captivated by it as soon as I started it. The writing style, um, Garth Nix is a f fine author, but I wouldn't put him on the same level as Patrick Rothfuss, who wrote The Name of the Wind. But for some reason, reading that short story about the lady in the lake, the lady of the lake, I felt like he was like getting up to that level. Hmm. Um, and then there's the third story that I read is a story about a couple kids who are in the middle of a war. Um, and that one, that one will get your feels. Um, that one was kind of hard to read, but it was also very good. And, um, I'm looking forward to reading the rest of it. My next book is 
Fundamentals of Statistical and Thermal Physics. <laughs> it sounds like a rollicking read. Um, that's not actually the next book I was going to talk about, but in all reality, I need to be studying for the GRE this that will be I will be taking this fall, and I have to get a head start in one of my classes for the fall. So, if I can finish Wizard and Glass in a timely fashion and have time to read another fiction book before I dig into fundamentals of statistical and thermal physics, my choice of reading material will be ancillary justice. Uh, it is not a new book. Well, I guess in the grand scheme of books, it's new. Uh, no, I don't remember when it came out. It is a science fiction novel. Um, it won, it won a Nebula award in whatever year it came out. 2013. 2013. Thank you. So it's part of a trilogy. The other three, uh, the other two books are Ancillary Sword and Ancillary Mercy, I think. Is that the order, Trevor? I can never remember the order. I think Mercy is second and Sword is third. Okay. Um, and the series is the Imperial Radic series? Ratch. Ratch. Okay. See, I was going to be leaning on you for pronunciation because you've listened to the audiobook. Yeah, I, I read the first one and then I listened to the second one and I thought, man, I... I know how all these words are pronounced now, but I don't know how to spell any of them. Yeah. So Radich is, that's actually, um, pretty straightforward. R A D C H. So if you look up Imperial Radich series or something like that trilogy, um, you'll find these, but ancillary justice is the first one. Um, and I'm actually only, I'm a couple of chapters in on it. I have this as a Kindle book and, when I went to the library recently with my kids, I found the Wizard and Glass. Not the Wizard in Glass. It's Wizard and Glass. So I checked that out and started reading it um, because of all the previous reason, previously stated reasons, uh, and put Ancillary Justice on the the shelf for now. But I'd like to get back to it. So I'm only two, maybe three chapters into it, and it's really interesting. Uh, from the very beginning, you kind of get uh, a sense of what's going on. So I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything with this, but uh, at least the first book is told from the perspective of a an AI from a ship. And yeah, it's the whole series. Is. Oh, the whole series is okay. So the the AI this ship is called a justice it's a like a troop carrier and the artificial intelligence in the ship can inhabit um ancillaries which are uh i think they are people that the empire has kind of wiped their their brains so they're basically just kind of um robot bodies uh that the hmm. the ship can then control and yeah but yeah they are basically harvested people and repurposed yeah from their conquests right um and the the way that the ai uses language is very interesting it takes 
uh, a little bit of getting used to. That's kind of what I like about the book is I'm discovering as I read. Uh, for instance, they uh, the narrator always uses she as the pronoun. And you don't find out until the second chapter that the language that the AI speaks naturally doesn't have a gender specific anything, I guess. Uh, and so they always use she for any pronoun and the, the AI has to kind of navigate other whenever it's communicating with other people that speak in languages that do have gender. It has to decide is this a male or a female? How do I need to address it? And that was a little bit confusing at first, but again, it's kind of fun to read and uh, discover what's going on and why. That feels like a very English conceit. Like we have gender and pronouns, but we don't have it with specific nouns or anything like that. And that seems to be a point of departure from how we approach romance languages and we have, that's like a concept we have to get used to with the things being masculine or feminine. Mm. So it seems like an English lens for viewing that as a overall linguistic issue because we encounter it in the most prevalent non-English languages that the majority of at least American English speakers encounter. Yeah. But this is specifically for people. Um, I know I understand overall oh, okay. the whole point. I was just saying that as a comparison, like I could see how you developed that concept as a writer in an English novel. Mm -hmm. Anyway, go on. And uh, in the second chapter, it's kind of a flashback to a previous deployment of the ship. And it's talking through um, how it perceives the the planet. And so it says something like, I was here on this step and I was also down the block and I was, you know, three miles away. And it's talking about its uh, consciousness was in these different bodies on the surface and I was also in orbit. And it's just a really cool um, new way of expanding your perspective on things. So I, I enjoyed the first couple chapters, and I look forward to reading the rest of it. Sounds interesting. Is it okay to say any more, or is that pretty much as far as we want to go? That's as far as I've gotten into the book. Okay. And um, so... One thing you didn't mention that I think you would know by now is that in the quote-unquote current timeline, as opposed to the flashback, um, the ship's AI is separated from the ship basically okay yes i yeah it's on some sort of personal quest but i haven't gotten to the point of what that quest is right so in the flashbacks it's the ship is its whole self with the ship and um however many ancillaries and then in the the now section of the book it has um the ship is just in one uh, basically human female body without all of the ancillaries and ship and everything, but she's, she's still herself, but she's just in the one body. It's interesting that they use the term ancilla for the, I guess, human devoid human bodies that they're using 
because in Halo, they use the term Ancilla to refer specifically to AI, which I guess it, it's all a matter of what you regard as ancillary. Is Ancilla uh, like the plural of ancillary? You're saying Ancilla, right? I think it's more of like the net, like you could use ancillary, I guess, in a noun form, but I think Ancilla is more the noun form and yeah. ancillary would be more the adjective form. Yeah, they do use it as a noun in the book ancillary but i'm but you I'm could just, use, i mean yeah you can use adjectives as nouns in english well enough but it's a matter of i don't know i just was clarifying that we weren't misspeaking no it, no i wasn't it, saying you oh, were okay. i was just saying that it's interesting that they're applied to almost opposite things mm. in that book versus how they use it in halo mm -hmm. what is the context of that usage in halo describing cortana they refer to her as an evolved ancilla. So they don't say ancillary? No, they say ancilla. I'm not familiar with ancilla as a word, I guess. I mean, is that like the same word? Like what? I think it's a different form of the word. Is Are you sure it's not just like a made up word? An aid to achieving or mastering something difficult. Okay, so it's a different word. I guess it is. I don't know. I would assume it has a similar root. Yeah, presumably. Considering it's only different from with the RY. <laughs> yeah, from... Okay, so origin, mid-17th... This is for ancillary. Mid-17th century, <laughs> century from Latin ancillaris. Ancillary derives from the English word ancilla, a somewhat rare word that means an aid to achieving or mastering something difficult. So it's derivative of ancilla. Sure. Okay, so... And both are from Latin. Okay, well, the books that we're talking about... <laughs> um, <laughs> A couple things that Dustin has not really seen yet, being just in the first two chapters, I would say the the world building is also excellent in in this series. I've read two of the three books, and it's, oh, I was under the impression you'd read them all. Uh, no, I've only read the first two so far. Okay, um, yeah, uh, space opera, grand scope, very good world building, big empires and such. Um, lots of commentary on the cultures and mm -hmm. difficulties in relating between them and stuff. So good stuff. Yeah. And that was something in the second chapter as well, that you're seeing the um, culture of the Radich empire uh, interacting with the culture of a, one of the um, worlds that they've, what do they call it? Not oc occupation, but um and it's not assimilating. That's the Borg. I but, can't remember the word they use. Yeah. Anyway, they've occupied this this uh, planet and absorbed them into the Radich Empire. And so you get to see the the cultural differences. And that's always fun for me, too. Yeah. It feels like it takes a lot of inspiration from the British Empire. Obviously, grander scale being um, in space and everything. But... Um, it feels like there's a lot of parallels with um, Imperial England. Mm -hmm. They really, really like tea. Mm. Like, <laughs> they really like tea. Who doesn't? <laughs> Americans. They, I mean, there are times when they talk about how, like, that's, like, the most important thing for them to have. Right. I've heard that the second book is focused on tea a lot. Yep. Matthew, what's your next book? Oh, I'm also a sucker for anything that's from the perspective of an AI or a computer. 
Like <laughs> I sometimes just go back and read chapter 11 of speaker for the dead, just mm. to get that snippet of when Jane gained self-awareness. Yeah. Hmm. Um, anyway, to answer your question, Dustin, my next book is actually a departure from everything we've had here. And I'm not sure if anyone will actually be interested in it, but um, it is a nonfiction book called Lost Languages that deals with um, writing scripts that are currently undeciphered. It, actually, it does that, and then it has an intro of famous scripts that were once, uh, like people had forgotten what they were and have been deciphered through a lot of hard work, like hieroglyphics, because that wasn't obviously deciphered until they found the Rosetta Stone and then put in a lot of hard work. Um, but it does a couple of those and then uses that as like a framework to say like, okay, here's how people successfully deciphered things. Here are the big ones that we don't currently have deciphered and is has them organized kind of in different ways of like, we're likely to decipher this. Um, we are unlikely to decide, like kind of goes on that continuum and there's a different internal metric. But anyway, um, I actually came to the book because I was looking for something on the Indus Valley scripts that are some, it's like one of the bigger mysteries that a lot of people are trying to dig into and figure out, but there's just not much progress on at the moment, but it has good uh, potential to be deciphered per basically the more you have of a thing like more examples of that script there's a likely possibility that you and that you could decipher it so that's one that there's a lot of examples of that we just don't no one knows how to approach it yet and it's old enough that the writing system is like very primitive so they think it's very primitive (laughs) but it's very interesting if you like language if you don't then you would have no interest in the book it's also like uh, a lot of nonfiction books can be either like really simplified or really esoteric and use a lot of technical yeah a lot of technical languages not languages like just a lot of technical terms that you kind of have to have a background in to understand or appreciate or fully comprehend one way or the other this i feel like is kind of right in the middle like it isn't too simplified, but it's definitely not an expert level. So it's very, if you have a moderate familiarity with just terms, <laughs> you should be able to read and enjoy. That was a question I was going to ask. So you read my mind. It sounds intriguing. It's a little, the only reservation I have is that the, at least the one I got from my library is a little dated at this point. It's from the early 2000s. So a question I immediately have is, has there, there's probably been research that's updated since it came out, but there wasn't anything else I was finding that was as comprehensive or anything that, I don't know, I feel like you'd almost have to dig into an academic library to find more up-to-date research but then i thought like there's enough in here that i'll appreciate the general broad footing it's giving me on a lot of it and some of it's like stuff i hadn't even like one of the things it deals with is um ranga ranga which is in the script that is on um easter island and that's just completely undeciphered and is 
very complex looking. So I was like, well, I have no familiarity with this whatsoever. I didn't even know that the inhabitants of Easter Island left behind a writing system. So I'm looking forward to that. Is the writing system shaped like giant heads? It's very pictographic from what I saw. (laughs) There were lizards. That was the main takeaway I remember seeing from an example was that there were lizards, which I just thought that's such a terrible thing to have to write all the time is like, okay, now I have to work on this lizard for the next two minutes to encode. (laughs) I don't know if it's a letter or a syllable or a whatever it is. (laughs) It did a very good job too of giving a very brief rundown of how different writing systems are structured, which I appreciated a lot. Did it mention Heptapod B at all? Sadly did not, but I think it was published before that short... Wait, when was that short story published? I thought it was mid-2000s. I'm not sure. If it, I think it was published... This book came out before that short story. So, before the discovery of Heptapod B. <laughs> Trevor, what about you? What's your... Well, now I have to look up when it came out. Oh. <laughs> that is important. And if anyone is interested in that, the author is Andrew Robinson. Did you say Andrew or Andrea? Andrew. Andrew, okay. Well, all of these links will be in the show notes as well. Story of Your Life, the story that Arrival was based on, was first published in 1998. Oh, there you go. So it could have included Heptapod B. But these are specifically human writing systems, so I don't think they would have included Mm. anything outside of that. I see a lot of fretting about the resilience of software and websites and um, digital data in general. And so it's just interesting. If I read, if I read that book, I will probably find myself thinking about that and the fact that even if you just write down words, the language may eventually be lost. So good luck, good luck trying to make something that'll last forever. That's one of the big problems they were talking about. Like there's one where, um, Etruscan, like that's one of the languages that's undeciphered that they have. They've got the script. They can read what it says, <laughs> but the language, Etruscan's a language isolate that doesn't connect to any Indo-European language. So it's useless to read it, like because you don't know what the words mean or any have any way to figure out what the words mean. Because like, that's what I was, I don't know. Like, for instance, I can phonetically read any greek but i can't necessarily tell you what every word in greek means and it's useless to be able to phonetically read a word without saying what that actually linguistically means should i go on to my next book yes you should what was my next book your next book is ready player one i i went back and forth on which books to do that's why i don't remember um my second was actually going to be the one Dustin picked since I still have the third one left to read. Um, but yeah, I knew we were going to get to talk about that. So wait, which one ancillary justice, ancillary justice. Well, ancillary sword is the one I haven't read yet. Okay. Um, but yeah, we got to talk about those. So my second pick is ready player one, which I read a few months ago. Um, it is a book set in the, nearish future 2040s i think and the basic concept is that most of 
human activity now takes place inside an artificial, this virtual world, um, that it's kind of like a cross between Facebook and world of Warcraft. (laughs) Accurate. Um, second life, maybe second life. If, (laughs) is that even irrelevant anymore? I don't know. No, I, I don't know if it's even online anymore. Um, oh, but yeah, it, it's possible that it was inspired partly by that back when people thought that it was going to matter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just in terms of saturation, it's like Facebook and then it's, uh, you know, people wear these like virtual reality visors. So everything's like hyper realistic and everything. Haptic. And, <laughs> haptic. Yeah. The word haptic gets used a lot. Um, the person who created this virtual world that so much of human life now happens in, he didn't have any heirs. So he set up a contest that activated on his death and it's basically a giant scavenger hunt predicated on mostly eighties pop culture references and also just geek culture in general. Um, not strictly the eighties, but big focus on the eighties largely centered around video games also having some stuff from music and movies um and this scavenger whoever wins the scavenger hunt wins his fortune and control of the oasis which is the virtual world and the virtual world is just like incredibly huge um beyond any games we have at the moment i guess uh well maybe if you leave out no man's sky but I don't know if that really counts. Um, The Oasis is not procedurally generated. It is handcrafted, I believe. Um, Yeah, so the book has a ton of 80s references as it follows these characters who are trying to win this contest. Um, I had heard a lot of people speak high praise of the novel. I think that it gets a lot of positive reviews simply because of the references and because people like the references and because the characters are talking about things that they like. Um, my overall impression was kind of middling. It's, it's a fun read. Uh, it's not super deep. It had a little bit more world building than I expected in terms of not just the Oasis itself, but the world outside the actual real world outside of that actually did get some fleshing out, which I didn't expect and found to be pleasantly surprised, surprising. Um, the story was fine, (laughs) but I mean, it's, it's just kind of a fun read that has a ton of references to stuff that a lot of people like, I guess. Having read the book as well, I would kind of agree with Trevor's assessment. I think the word fun is very spot on. Like it's just a light, it, a light read. It enjoys you can tell, like, the author enjoys what the author is doing, like, really likes all the references, and, like, that's kind of the, um, I don't know. Like, that in itself kind of becomes an, a feature of the book in that it's like, okay, you can tell that it's not just writing a book to tell a story, like, that it's, the person writing it is kind of, like, meta-invested and all the stuff that they're saying is important to people in the world. So, it it's just very it's not without its flaws. Like there's definitely some, I don't know. We don't want to get into that, but it's, <laughs> it, um, yeah, it's just a good fun read, like kind of popcorny. I 
guess. But it goes a little deeper than like what you would even call like typically a popcorn novel, I think. Or like a popcorn movie, like something, I don't know. Does that make sense? Um, Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Most of the people that I've talked with about this book have absolutely adored it and just gone on and on about how great it was. Um, So there's a good chance that if this topic interests you, that you'll like it a lot more than I did. (laughs) So I don't, I don't want to make it sound lame because of um, how unenthusiastic I am about it, but it it was a good fun read, whatever. Um, It's not like one of my favorite books or anything, Yeah, but it seems like it is a favorite book for a fair number of other people. Yeah. I think I, I specifically read, I feel like I'm, I'm sorry if I'm stealing any of your thunder on this. It's, no, not at all. Um, I feel like I intentionally picked something that one of you'd be able to talk about. I feel like I read this because in part I had seen so many things like this book is revolutionary. It redefines genres and all of that stuff. And while I certainly would agree that in a way it's one of the more metatextual books I've read, I don't find it genre redefining at all. Like it no. very like the story itself is incredibly basic, <laughs> but yeah. enjoyable for what it is. Yeah. Um I don't I don't know if I would say it's as basic as it could have been. I was a little bit nervous that it would be super, super basic, like Hero just kind of breezes through everything and is like, I found this thing and I found this thing and yay, I win the scavenger hunt. And it it certainly did a better job than I feared. Um, so there was actually some suspense and such regarding what was actually going to happen with the scavenger hunt. Yeah, that's fair enough. But I also don't feel like we have, I don't know, just like straight up hero has no difficulty narratives as a, I don't know, a basic narrative anymore. Like, I don't, I think it would be too hard to believe for people, modern readers. I don't know. Yeah. The last book I read that was like that was. A Princess of Mars, which I believe was originally published in 1913. <laughs> so, so maybe those have fallen by the wayside. Before the First World War. <laughs> yeah, that one did us in. If only we had a hero to show us through the First World War who just could stay a bright, shining beacon. No. <laughs> Actually, Edgar Rice Burroughs gets a shout out in Wonder Woman. Nice. Anyway, uh, yeah. Um, oh, so I listened to the audiobook. Of Ready Player One, I had been told um, with much praise that it was read by Will Wheaton. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Will Wheaton is actually mentioned in the book, and then he reads the audio book. Um, some people see that as a huge positive because they love Will Wheaton. I, <laughs> um, I guess I'm not hugely familiar with Will Wheaton's work, but um, he. <laughs> What am I trying to say? Uh, I mean, Will Wheaton is known for Star Trek, right? Yes. He was the precocious Wesley Crusher. I have not <laughs> seen any of the stuff that he is in in Star Trek. So my familiarity with him mostly comes from the Guild. Oh, he's in the Guild? Interesting. Yeah, he's in the Guild in some of the later seasons, I think. Makes Maybe sense. Maybe like season three, I want to say. I think I only saw one. Um, the Guild is a uh, kind of a online series almost like a, what would you call it? Like an online web series, web series. Isn't yeah. that what they call them? I don't know. Yeah. Made by Felicia day. And he plays kind of a, like a villain, but I mean, it's, the web series is like super low stakes. Like they're like 
video game rivals or whatever, but he's, he's like a villain in that. And I've seen him play like minor villains and a couple other things where he's not evil. He's just like kind of a jerk. And so I have a hard time not hearing his voice as being the voice of a guy who's kind of a jerk just cause that's what I've seen him in. I believe the, the technical term is D bag. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then he's narrating this book as the main character. And I'm like, I, I don't know if I like you because like, <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess that's just a personal problem. If you're familiar with Will Wheaton from other stuff, or if you like him, then I guess that's not a problem. Most people didn't like him in Star Trek either. So. Oh, okay. Is that why he plays minor villains and everything? <laughs> I don't know. It's just kind of the prevailing sentiment of okay. Star Trek discussions is that Wesley Crusher was annoying. Okay. In the few things I've seen him in as an adult, that the role you described is what he plays. Like yeah. kind of an antagonistic character that isn't wholly evil, but you're not supposed to like I like him on Tabletop, which is his little web series on tabletop games. I'm sure he's a fine person in actual fact, uh, but that was something that made the the audiobook a little more difficult to digest for me and probably would make it far more desirable for some other people. So I wanted to mention it. And it may color my opinion of the book just a little bit. What color? Um, <laughs> I, I don't understand the question and I won't respond to it. <laughs> the whole ready player one had kind of like, a I don't know, like a messy red or a dark purple, maybe a brownish color feel to it. <laughs> kind of a brownish color. You know, your coat's kind of a brownish color. <laughs> <laughs> like the feeling of a messy sunset, which wouldn't necessarily have a. I don't know. I'm guessing a painting. Anyway, don't ask stupid questions, Dustin. <laughs> <laughs> You've not read it, have you, Dustin? No, and I don't intend to. Okay. It doesn't sound entertaining to me. And it's... When I heard everyone raving about it, it sounded kind of gimmicky. And so I just have not really felt the drive to... There's so many other books that I want to read out there that I'm not going to jump on a book that I don't really have a strong desire to read. Sure. I had to stop and like Wikipedia, several things frequently in that <laughs> just to understand like, Oh, this was like did reference a specific video game, a very early video game that I was not familiar with. And I'd stop and read it to try to see if that was basic knowledge of it was helpful in understanding what was going on. I was fine with the video game and music references. What really threw me off were the references to Japanese TV shows. Oh, yeah, because that's even outside of like, like I had never heard of Supida Man before. Oh, I'd heard of that. That one I was fine with. <laughs> I figured you had. Would you like to fill the others in? <laughs> I, no, no, there's just <laughs> wacky spider-man stuff from like i don't know there was just there were japanese spider-man shows and of course because it's a japanese show with spider-man he fights in a giant robot so that that's all you need to know it's just off the wall like wouldn't make any sense to you if you follow spider-man at all <laughs> did they mention you two at all 
I don't know if they did. Do you remember, Matthew? I don't remember catching any references to them, but that... Yeah, I don't think there were any U2 references. It was... They mostly just talked about Rush. Yeah, I was going to say, that seemed to be the main music reference that happened, but I... Again, it was much heavier on definitely video games and movies than it was on the music end of things. And TV show stuff. No you too. One star. <laughs> yeah, Rush definitely takes the focus with that. Um, they kind of have an advantage because of their... Um, because they actually have a song that is sort of a space opera. Rush? Yeah. This is a video game opera. What? <laughs> no. How How does... <laughs> having a space opera song affect this book okay say so just so just to fill people in if you're not familiar with the term space opera it has nothing to do with the style of music it's referring to the grand sweeping story such as star wars or foundation or the imperial ratch series or mass effect or mass effect yeah um so uh, i am referring to rush's 2112 so what I, I what's your question Dustin? Okay, so you said it's a space opera song. Yeah. This is not a space opera book. The book the book is set in a video game, but the video game is in space. Contains Well, there are parts so they mention at one point like there's the entirety of the Star Wars galaxy is contained in the video game as well as Firefly. Adjacent to that Thanks for interrupting me. Adjacent to the Star Wars galaxy, there's the Star Trek galaxy and the Battlestar galaxy. And now we're talking. And um, the Whedon verse um, with Firefly and everything. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it contains a lot of other things. Uh, it probably contains a complete replica of Middle Earth, I think they say at one point. Um so it contains all these other things. It also contains complete playable copies of classic video games. So like there'll be a part where he like sits down and like plays an Atari game or whatever. Um, as just like a mini game within that. But it's like, I mean, he's in like a complete like virtual reality. It's like he might as well to his senses be sitting in a house playing an Atari, but he's inside the video game playing this other video game because it's haptic that's why it seems so real mm -hmm. <laughs> i didn't want to say it again <laughs> yeah um anyway um so there's a part in the story where he goes into the world of rush's 2112 i hope that's not a spoiler it was the whole book's ruined <laughs> the whole book so if you like classic video games and Rush. 80s movies and maybe just Rush and not any other music. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what an absurd qualifier. <laughs> and if you don't hate Will Wheaton, <laughs> then you can read the then book. This might be the book for you. <laughs> but yeah, seriously, I a lot of people seem to really love this book, so check it out. I hope we have a listener that 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 perfectly describes and he just got so excited hearing that that he like flipped the table and just <laughs> threw the pot like isn't even listening to the podcast anymore he's just darting to a library to 
maybe resetting his computer to Amazon to order the book, or I don't know. <laughs> I would say I I get a lot of my books from the library. A lot of the audiobooks I have to wait. Um if it's an older I mean, basically the older the book is, the less I have to wait to check it out. And this is probably the in terms of like how old the book was and how long I had to wait for it, it kind of stood out as like, I guess people really love this book because I had to wait like a few months for it, even though it's several years old at this point. Yeah, I think that's right. Cause it was like 2011, maybe something like that. And I kind of had the same thought Dustin did and that I wasn't really going to prioritize it, but I kept running into people who were talking about it and were really excited about it. And I wanted to have another book under my belt that other people had actually read because my success rate with Sabriel is not real high at this point, but I will keep trying to get people to read Sabriel. You succeeded with me and yes. by extension, my wife and Dustin. Well, I realized I wasn't being very successful with other people when they would like post on Facebook. I need a book recommendation. What do you say? I would say Sabriel and they would never do it or I would be talking with them. But anyway, I, decided to focus all of my efforts on getting you to read it. <laughs> and that is how that happened. I probably shouldn't tell you I had another friend tell me to read it as well. No, it was all my doing. I also had a student that recommended it to me, so... No, you didn't. <laughs> I have done this. We stand in the midst of my achievements. <laughs> <laughs> something, something, don't choke on your something. Oh. <laughs> Aspirations? Yes. I think we've covered everything. All right. Trevor, would you mind closing with the ways that they can oh, find us? Yeah, I guess we should do that. If you would like to see the show notes for this episode with links to the various books that we have discussed, you can find them at betterworlds.net slash podcast slash 13. Is this the 13th episode? I don't know. Sounds right. Let me look at my podcast app here. Does that mean it's unlucky? Boo. I mean, I don't think it's gone very well. <laughs> you don't Jeez. think anything's gone very well. Trevor, I'm glad that we have someone so optimistic as you on the show. I mean, I could easily feel bad about the content we're putting out there, but you keep me from spiraling into a cesspool of depression. Just like a certain Greek Amazonian warrior. You mean a cesspool of optimism? <laughs> Confused. Okay, it is episode 13. You can find us on Twitter at BetterWorldsNet. And we also have a Slack group, which if you want to join and talk with us on Slack, then you can email us at feedback at betterworlds.net and we will shoot you an invitation. You can also email us at that same address for whatever reasons, basically anything. We just want your emails. And if you are a Triskaidekaphobe, don't worry, we lied about it being the 13th episode. What? <laughs> Should we just skip to episode 14, like hotel rooms? It's actually our 14th episode, if you count episode zero. Are we, are we just going to skip to episode 14, like a hotel <laughs> floor? Unless it's an Asian hotel, then we should have skipped, like, what is it, four? I don't know. Four, yeah. True story, when I lived in Taiwan, I needed to buy size four shoes, and they wouldn't sell them to me. 
<laughs> because it was unlucky yep. to have size four feet. It sounds like death. Yep. It's unlucky because I think in a lot of, at least, is it Chinese? Yes. In versions of Chinese, the word four sounds like death. Mm. I shouldn't be explaining. This should be something Trevor covers completely. You got it. Okay. You're the one reading a book about languages. <laughs> <laughs> Undeciphered languages. We know what Chinese means. <laughs> but uh, all the stuff about this not actually being episode 13 is a lie. <laughs> <laughs> and you can indeed find it at the, yeah, 13. It's episode 13. Betterworlds.net slash. Oh, man. <laughs> Thanks for undoing my trigger warning. <laughs> what are we doing? Wait, why is the Neil Gaiman thing called trigger warnings? Yeah, that's a good question. That actually is the best part of the book thus far was his introduction, um, where he was talking about how he just generally trigger warnings and what his thoughts were on those. And he specifically was saying that he wanted to call the book trigger warnings because he doesn't feel fiction should be safe. And you can never guarantee that fiction is safe. So you need to label it as not being a safe thing because you should never feel the assumption that it is like it should have open challenges to you that might be difficult to deal with. So is he overall negatively dispositioned toward trigger warnings? He somehow came across as both endorsing it and like he didn't mind like, I don't know, he was middle to the ground, I would say. Yeah. Interesting. I'm a little triggered by his flippant use of trigger warnings. <laughs> also trigger warning this is episode 13 despite all of the lies that have been told in the past couple minutes and trigger warning there's been some lies <laughs> betterworlds.net slash podcast slash 13 thank you for listening go then So I did not bring this up during the thing because it didn't really fit in. But when you brought up that story from um, across the wall, that reminded me of a quote that I came across that I really liked that was about the end of Animorphs that I'm going to slightly redact but share with you. Um, uh, without putting too much... Well, you're never going to read it. But anyway, without giving too much away in spoiler form... It turns into a huge big mess, and there's a lot of bad stuff. So this was the quote from the end of Animorphs that the author gave after people were reacting to it. So, you don't like the way our little fictional war came out? You don't like X-dead and X-shattered and X-guilt-ridden? You don't like that one war simply led to another? Fine. Pretty soon you'll be of voting age and of draft age. So when someone proposes a war, remember that even the most necessary wars, even the rare wars where the lines of good and evil are clear and clean, end with a lot of people dead, a lot of people crippled, and a lot of orphans, widows, and grieving parents. And I enjoyed that quote. Preach it. That sounds a little bit like the intro to the story that Garth Nix wrote. The thing that I see people bring up, and I think it's actually the strong point of the Animorph series, is people will say it's one of the more thoughtful, like for being a children's, a young, a, I don't know, a young person series, 
it gives a lot of thought to like the nature of war and the effects that it has on people and it's overall like a surprisingly mature take on having to deal with war so from the intro he wrote this um while the second iraq war was brewing but before it had begun for a charity anthology that was being sold to help kids in war-torn areas um and he says in charlie rabbit i wanted to tell a story of course but also to communicate a snapshot of some small children caught up in a war a non-specific war because the children suffer no matter what the war is about or where it is or who is fighting it. Often children in a war have little or no idea of what is really going on. They simply suffer the consequences. That does sound very similar. Yeah, and that one was that one was really hard to read. I feel like that's a better way to... T- like. It's very easy to say, like, I don't like war and war is bad. Like, just to take that type of approach, but to take it where you're not deviating from that, but putting out the harsh details of it as well. And like having to wrestle with that component of it is more effective in delivering the message in a way. albeit in a harder way to digest, not harder in the, well, you know what I mean? Yeah painful to digest because it actually has the impact it should. Is that what you mean by harder? Yes. That was what I was trying to get at by harder. Harder makes it sound like you wrote it more difficultly and that's not what I was trying to say. No, just emotionally painful because in the story you're watching the children suffer. I don't think I would be able to read that one. That's a good example of a fictional story that is also true. Mm, Yeah. Because it is communicating something that is true, even if the events did not happen. I feel like I read some story where there was a character whose parent was an actor or a writer or something, and they were constantly talking about like how their father dealt in lies, but that those lies were truer than reality that they normally dealt with. That sounds really familiar. Same. Maybe we're all <laughs> maybe it's from some book we all read that we don't remember. Do you do you have any more context for that? No. <laughs> Did you read Name of the Wind? Um, this is an awkward question because Trevor gave it to me, but the answer is no, not okay. yet. Okay, that's it is on a shelf of books to be read. He gave me Red Rising. I haven't read that yet. I gave you my own copy because it was that important to me that you read it. Is that true? Yes. Oh, <laughs> and because I'd forgotten to get you a present. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Although you presented that in such a way that it actually makes me feel better. (laughs) (laughs) But I did want you to read it. It's on the list. What were we talking about? Finishing the podcast? The the quote. The quote. Yeah, we were doing quotes on the horrific nature of war. The story is... No, the, the one that talked brought in Name of the Wind. Oh. Their parent is like an... What? You said an actor? Uh, an actor or a playwright or like a fictional... Someone who deals with... Storyteller. I don't even know. It might have been storyteller. It's something... Yeah, they dealt with fictions. I want to... I feel like acting or playwriting was involved, but I could be wrong on that. I just Googled it, and the first thing that came up was a MetLife commercial. (laughs) (laughs) Called My Father is a Liar. Methinks that is not the one. Should we stop recording?
No. <laughs> Apparently, this commercial went viral in February 2015. Was it? Do you remember the media it was through? It was a book. Was it a? It was a book. Okay. Sure, it was. But that might not help Trevor if he like audio book listened to it. What books have we read that are the same? <laughs> I'm not sure this is worth agonizing over. No, it seems. No, it is super familiar, and it's going to drive me crazy if I don't figure out what it was. There's a 1975 Canadian film called Lies My Father Told Me. It's not from Sabriel. And there's a bunch of articles about Obama. If I start thinking about lies that are used in a constructive way, I just end up thinking about like um, Journey into Mystery and Loki, which is a comic you should both... I don't actually... I don't know. I, re- I want to recommend it, but it... I think I like um, villains going through redemption arcs more than you guys. <laughs> Why do you say that? I don't know. My favorite franchise is Star Wars. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, oh. Or attempt, I should say attempting re- redemption arcs. That's probably okay. a better. Matthew, have you read The Things They Carried? I have not. Okay, that's a concept that is talked about there the villain seeking redemption no the the quote that we're trying to oh the fictions using to tell truth yeah a lie used to tell truth through fiction yeah i see um no why did the name of the wind come up earlier um well his parents were i i was asking if he had read that because i was thinking that might be where i had read it Oh, but his parents were troubadours, not storytellers necessarily. I got nothing. I I also have nothing. I too am bereft of things. <laughs>